You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Episode 160, The Paradox. Welcome to The Paradox with your attending, Dr. Eric Larson. He is a practicing anesthesiologist and clinical assistant professor at Michigan State University College of Human Medicine. Listen in as he takes you behind the scenes of what practicing medicine in today's ever-changing world is like with another doctor. The Paradox is a fun and accidentally informative show for physicians, patients, or anyone who has ever found themselves in a waiting room. the Paradox. I'm your host, Dr. Eric Larson. Thank you for joining me as we explore the U.S. medical system in a fun and informed format through expert analysis. I'm sure today you're going to enjoy the conversation as much as I had having it. I'm with Dr. Meg Edison again. She has been on for a long time, actually been far too long, and we're going to discuss some things that are maybe a little bit in the weeds for the average person, but if you're a physician, you're familiar with the Board of Medicine that each state has it. They're the ones who provide disciplinary action against physicians who are behaving badly, and it's a place where if you're a patient, you can lodge complaints. And we're going to talk about her two run-ins with the Board of Medicine in the state of Michigan. The first is with a badly behaving physician within her own practice. And then we're going to talk about her personal experience that she had this last year, which was sort of humorous and comical in the sense that it all turned out okay in her point. But it was a case of misinformation, someone who actually was trying to cancel her. And it was a interesting process, and we're going to talk about that. You can find out the rest of the story about the sort of ridiculous nature of this complaint, but one that is a real problem that can happen to physicians, right? You, when you face board action, you can lose your ability to practice medicine and your career for allegations in this case, which were spurious, but they could certainly be ones that are harder to disprove perhaps and put you in real trouble. So I think you enjoy that discussion. We'll also go into talking about organized medicine, what's going on with certification. And so again, if you're a patient or if you're a physician, you're going to find a lot in this program, and I think you just have a lot of fun with the conversation, as we did. I'd like to remind you that if you're a new listener from We Are Libertarians, thank you so much for joining. Make sure you subscribe to the show. If you've not yet subscribed, hit the subscribe button on whatever podcast player you're using. Also, make sure you leave a five-star review. I only accept five-star reviews. I'm just kidding. But go ahead and leave a review. I'd appreciate it. And the reason the show has grown so much is because you're sharing it with your colleagues, your friends, your family. And I appreciate that so much. I can't tell you how much it means to me that so many of you are sharing with your friends and get, reaching out to me. You can always send me an email at the Paradox Show, and that's spelled the way the show is spelled with the DOCS. So the Paradox Show at protonmail.com. If you have show ideas, people you think would be interesting to interview, I'm always looking for new topics, things that obviously relate to medicine. Try not to focus too much on COVID, but boy, it is just always coming <laughs> into conversations. And today we're going to talk a little bit about COVID, but mainly because it just relates to the story and the actual action that was brought up against Dr. Edison. Also, if you'd like to go to Patreon to support the show, 
All the money and proceeds that are raised goes towards the production and promotion of the show. You can go to patreon.com slash the paradox. I'm not sure if it can be technically called an Easter egg if I actually tell you that it's there. But at the end of the show, after the solo, you get a nice outtake from the show. And I feel like every time I have a conversation with Meg, we have a moment. And this time it was my clock that was going off and our brief little conversation waiting for the clock chimes to end for her to finish her answer. But without further ado, risking the loss of your medical license for allegations of misinformation with Dr. Megan Edison. Enjoy. All right. Well, welcome back to the paradox. I'm here with my longtime friend, Dr. Megan Edison, a pediatrician here in Grand Rapids. And she's been on the show twice before. It's been quite a while, 130 episodes ago or so, or 140 now. I think it's episode 20. And we talked to Again, a little bit what we're going to talk about today. So we talk about legislation and physicians and sort of medicine. So thanks again for coming on and bringing your expertise to the show. No problem. <laughs> well, you've been an advocate for a long time. Uh, we've known each other for years, and we've both been in organized medicine. And organized medicine is, I guess, a loose term to say that you're in like an association or some sort of society like the State Medical Societies, American Medical Association, Especially societies like you'd be in the AAP, I would be in the ASA, which is anesthesia. So anyway, uh, we're going to talk about stuff that's going on in the in the the sphere of licensure. And so, you've had. Some, <laughs> why don't you tell us a little bit of your story of, of what's oh. going on with licensure? Okay, you got to be more specific. Okay, so we're going to talk about we're going to talk to be more clear. I want to talk about medical licensing. So for those who are not aware. Licensing in the state is done at the state level. It's not a federal licensure program for physicians. I think for most professionals, actually, I think most of them are done at the state level. You know, we are a federalized system, so to speak. And uh, so there are various rules and these boards, whatever they're composed of, of bureaucrats, of usually people in your profession and some sometimes some citizens. It kind of just depends on the board makeup. People will... You, there are requirements to get your licensure, whether it's, uh, you know, education and... Uh, continue medical education for our, in our case for physicians and then you have to conduct yourself uh, in a certain manner and you have to you know not commit fraud and those sorts of things and so of course anytime there's a board there can be people who file complaints because if there's someone who does something that is not doctorly right they should have an ability to I guess a grievance or I'm not sure exactly what the term is but so why don't you talk to us about your license <laughs> you've been licensed state of Michigan as I am Talk to me and the audience about what you've gone through with licensure recently with the state of Michigan. Okay. So I, I think the topic that you want to get on is, I guess, licensure uh, for physicians and kind of this overlap for how do we keep good doctors practicing and how do we censure bad doctors and how do we keep that from being a little bit too onerous sometimes. Sure. Like a, a so, speech issue. Here. Okay. Sure. And I, I guess I've had a little bit to a little more experience with the Board of Medicine recently on a couple of cases. So um, so I've learned a little bit more about the Board of Medicine, at least in Michigan recently, um, how, how you would report a bad doctor, how the whole process would work. Um, and then more recently, I got the experience of um, going through having been reported for, I guess, providing misinformation. <laughs> right. So I guess it's <laughs> just really, really embarrassing, you know, um, kind of stressful process to go through, but it was, 
it had a normal outcome. Nothing happened to me, but it was a good experience to see how this process works. Why do we, if how much can we disclose of the previous thing without, or if you, if you um, feel comfortable talking about much of it, or which the the pre, with your previous partner? Okay, so my the first experience I ever had with the Board of Medicine was actually my boss um, a few years ago. Uh, ended up losing his license in the state of Michigan because he uh, sexually abused uh, an autistic patient. So I got to kind of experience that whole process of how um, how the board works, um, their testimony system, how they investigate, and then um, he ended up losing his license eventually. So that was my first kind of experience with that. I thought it was a had a good outcome in the end, um, but I through that process I got to learn about this in other states how when doctors behave badly there's often not as much <laughs> censure they can go right back to practice medicine you know after just you know maybe a few months of a time off so well i mean we had obviously i mean most people are familiar with the nasser case right that is probably yeah. the most famous recent uh, issue with licensure or at least with the uh, doctors behaving badly in yeah. the state of michigan uh, where he sexually abused scores i mean hundreds i'm not sure how many athletes yeah. uh with, with his uh associated with the uh, with Michigan State University and then also with the US Olympic gymnastics program. And so there's a, I think a, a distinction that probably you, that I know you learned in this process that there is a board of medicine action but they have very limited they have limited abilities in, in what sort of um, evidence or test evidence or things they actually count right as mm-hmm. uh, actionable yep. and then what they can't use. Like I think you know most people think oh there's a felony committed well then clearly they're going to lose their license right? So why don't you go into that? Because I know that was kind of surprising to you when you first went through this with your partner. Um, so with um, with my partner a few years ago, that the thing that was, I guess, surprising to me um, and was surprising, I guess that I realize this is an issue nationally, is that when a, a physician, um, when it comes to like sexually abusing a patient, um, that doesn't... Uh, what often will happen is they they can get reported to the board of medicine. They can maybe lose their medical license, um, or maybe just get censured and go back to practicing a little bit later. Um, and then that's you know they just stop practicing medicine. They don't go to jail. They don't um, nothing's in like the um, sex offender registry. Nothing like that because the the board of medicine is a very separate entity from law enforcement. So um, that was definitely a problem in Michigan where you can do something really bad to a patient and it just kind of gets dealt with within the medical board and doesn't actually ever get over to law enforcement. So these people can just stop being doctors and then they could just go be a teacher or a camp counselor or (laughs) a youth pastor, you know, and there's, you would never know that this person did something really horrible and lost their medical license because there's nothing in the news. There's nothing, you know, in the, you know, sex offender registry, nothing like that because it doesn't actually go through um, the legal system. Right. So if you're, if you're, they have some, you know, application, have you ever committed a felony? They say, well, no. I mean, they may have lost a license because they sexually abused 10 people or something, but yeah. uh, until it le- until it reaches criminal charges, right? And so yeah. that, that's a separate process based on what you're yeah. saying. Which and sometimes it just won't go in that direction for whatever reason. In, in Michigan, there's a kind of a funny loophole where if you report something to the Board of Medicine and the Board of Medicine, they really can't go report it to the law enforcement. They're supposed to just do the right. kind of stay in their lane and only work on the licensure portion of the offense. And, so. and it's all secretive, right? I mean, in the sense yeah. that it's not public as far as what the investigation is going. So they w- there's no yeah. reason for law enforcement to know where the Board of Medicine is, and the Board of Medicine is, is 
they're not allowed to tell law enforcement what they're up to, yeah. so to speak, right? It'll sometimes go the other way. Like if somebody, if you were abused by your doctor and you went straight to the police, the police would then tell the Board of Medicine and then they would get the, the board part going. But it doesn't work the other way. If you think, oh, this doctor abused me, I tell the hospital and then the hospital reports it to the board, no one's going to tell the police. <laughs> yeah. So that's where the there's a disconnect there. Sure. So. And and the average person's not going to think to do those things, right? Like you just want to get this person reporting to get the ball rolling, so to speak, right? Super and so you common. may not. People, yeah, yeah. when something happens, they're like, "What? What's like just the least amount of authority I can report this to?" You know, you see something bad. You know, you're like, "I'm just going to report this to the doctor's boss or the hospital." You know, you don't really think I should go to the police, you know? So I think that's pretty common. I think that even happened in like the gymnastics community. They thought, well, I'm just gonna report it to the owner of the gym or maybe the USA Gymnastics. And then it never went to the police. (laughs) Right, yeah. You know, so that's pretty common that you just don't, sometimes you aren't thinking this was a crime. I should report this to police. And when it comes to, I mean, I have a little bit of experience too with law enforcement and um, with crimes and things like that. So it's not guaranteed when you report something that it necessarily is going to You'd be you know, acted upon. Like you could yeah. report a crime and if yeah. the prosecutor doesn't have the resources and the time, bandwidth, whatever, they may not do anything, right? I mean, they can't, you can't prosecute every crime that comes into your office because you just don't have enough officers or whatever. So it's not surprising, I guess, in some ways that that gets dropped. But it then becomes a tragedy when you have someone who, like a Nasser, right, who's yeah. clearly was reported many times. There are lots of suspicions, but kind of no one was there looking from an aggregate view. Like yeah. this is this is a problem, right? This guy is an issue. Um, and that, so things happen, right? And then someone hears a report of one thing and they, well, maybe it's just one, not realizing there were 20 other issues that, of that these, person. These right? people are really good at what they do. Well, they're right. right? They're you experts. Know, they're and, really, yeah. really good at lying and you just, you won't see it coming. So like NASA, I haven't gone through this. I can't really blame anyone who worked alongside NASA for not seeing it because you, you just won't, you know, they're really, oh, sure. good, they're really good at you know, living a lie and you will not suspect it. It's very disconcerting. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, the really, it, you're dealing with generally intelligent people too, right? Who are probably maybe more, even yeah. more effective at covering crimes or um, deviances. And well, I'll see this in anesthesia when we have people who are diverting uh, medications and using opioids on the, for themselves, you know, and, or any, or, you know, nurses and other people, they're, they're usually, it's not easy proving it. They're not like, caught with their hand in the cookie jar usually right yeah it's like they're they're signs and they're things you just look for but it's it's not like they're walking around inebriated and like stumbling around when it gets to that point they're really i mean they've been doing it for quite a while so they're i mean people are extremely you know good at this sort of i guess you're not then you're you're caught very quickly and that's the end of that but so then let's talk about your specific instance because this is (laughs) because i think it's really interesting because we've heard this a little bit about this in the news more of um, you know, concern about if people are giving, I don't know, misinformation is kind of a dumb term right now, but it's maybe the best is yeah. when you have a difference of opinion or people think that uh, trying to cancel people, I guess, is another sort of way of looking at it. What specifically happened with you with your practice that was so, that got you purported the, the other, board of medicine? This, I know this is, again, nothing came of this, so I'm, I'm fine, but... Um, it definitely changes your opinion when you kind of see how this process works. But um, I had a, a family um, report me to the Board of Medicine for what they called misinformation. And um, it was, you know, the way this, I guess, works is when 
you make a report, at least in Michigan, the way our board works is it's, um, and this can be a good thing or a bad thing, it's nine physicians, and then there's one PA, and then eight just regular citizens. Mm -hmm. So that's considered to be a good thing, I guess, for public trust, because it's not just a bunch of doctors kind of keeping things amongst themselves. You have community members who are on the board, and that's supposed to be a good thing. Um, But where it can be maybe not that good um, is there's not going to be that medical expertise. So I guess what happens whenever there's a report to the Board of Medicine in Michigan, they will, everything gets addressed. So, you know, anyone can just report a doctor for anything. It doesn't have to be the patient. You just heard them say something that you didn't like, and you can report them, or you're a disgruntled employee. Anyone can do it. And so they have to address everyone and they can say um, this is just bogus and they can throw it out and the, or they can say we want more information. And so in my case, I guess they put it out to the whoever decides and one person was on vacation, another person um, <laughs> was, you know, said, yeah, maybe and another person didn't respond. And so it ended out the police officer had to you know, give me a call and figure so out what was going So is it a police officer? It was a former police guy. So, okay. And this is, the whole process was very, very unusual. So I got an email just in my Gmail account from some guy who just said, hey, um, I have a licensing issue I'd like to talk to you about. And I was like, oh, well, okay. I don't know. Maybe I... Why would you respond to that? Did, was well, it, did it some authority it like his my, signature or something? It was in my or? Gmail. And I was like, well, that's weird. Because everything is a scam. I mean, I know. I would have missed it otherwise. And I, so I Googled his name. I was like, ah, oh, well, this is... He actually works for the state of Michigan. I oh, think okay. this is legit, right? You know, and so then the next day I had a call um, from this guy at my office, and I was like, "Well, I think this is probably for real." But I sure. was like, "I don't know. Is it my CME? They just want me to give my receipts. I don't know what this is." So, so anyway, so this guy called my office, and so I did end up talking to him. And um, I, you know, I am sure if you have libertarians listening, they're like, "You should never talk to police." <laughs> What's your badge and number? I was, I I guess, naive in retrospect, but you you just wanted to talk to me about this this case, which um, I told him I honestly did not, I knew the family. I just didn't remember the actual interaction in the office. It was not, did not raise any red flags after the visit where I thought, well, that was a really awkward visit. You know, it didn't seem like nothing, nothing at all. It was was, just normal, my normal day. I didn't, I wasn't nothing I don't remember anything about it my charting didn't reflect anything unusual um, in the interaction but um, the three things that I was um, reported for um, and I told him I didn't really recall saying these things um, but told me what they were one was that uh, I was I told the family I didn't think uh, cloth masks would prevent the wearer from contracting COVID um, that I didn't um, anticipate the FDA approving the vaccine for young children uh, anytime soon, and that uh, there was COVID in the deer population in Michigan. <laughs> so I, I said to him, like, well, okay, I don't really recall that conversation with the family, but of those three things, the first one with the cloth masks, that's actually information from the CDC yeah. that I was giving I would give the family if they were asking me, you know, if you're really concerned about contracting COVID, you should wear, you know, a 
higher quality mask. You'd be wearing right. it in 95. Right. Something else is a cloth mask. Um, probably isn't going to do a great job of protecting. And, and that's that was coming. Abs- that was absolutely the CDC yes, initially, the right? CDC they were saying, was saying it protects the other people. It doesn't protect you, yeah, right? Yeah. I mean, that was kind of the, the so that was that was from the CDC. Um, the next item uh, about the FDA not—I mean, it still isn't FDA approved, right? You know, but for sure at that time, correct? They yeah. um, they weren't for young children, and it still to this day is not fully FDA approved for the, yeah. the younger population. So that was FDA's information I was giving. The third was from the DNR, where they had studied the deer population in Michigan right. that showed that whatever, you know, the 70% of deer at that time had COVID. Strangely, <laughs> most of them had Omicron now, too. I'm yeah. not quite sure how. So I, I was sitting here, and I, you know, the guy was really nice, you know, about the whole process. He just felt like he had to just get the information. And, you know, I ended up getting dismissed. But that was, it was disconcerting. I'm like, I gave in the office information from three government entities, and yet I still got investigated by the government for just repeating what they said, you know? Right. So, <laughs> um, so first question is, of course, is this a new family? Is this someone you'd no, so they been, no, so they, known, had a, they, oh, they knew who yeah, you were. They knew yeah, what you're like. You knew what so, they're like. I don't know. I, I, this has been a really rough time for a lot of people, yeah. you know? And so I, I think maybe people are on edge and it's sometimes it's hard in pediatrics cause I have some families who take it, don't take it seriously enough, you know? Um, and it have been, perhaps too cavalier. I have some that take it too seriously to the point that they're causing harm to their children. You yeah. know? So you have to somehow find a middle ground here where, you know, let's just, you know, take care of our kids as best we can, but we got to also live life too. Do so. you think it took a while for that to get to you? Like, I'm wondering if that was the information you gave out and then you, they're coming back in six, eight months where now if that family went up, they go, the family say, oh, you know what? You're probably right about all that stuff. I now it seems I think they reported obvious. maybe right away. So in some of it too. But it was like know, last summer. You know what I'm saying? Is when, when yeah, is, I mean, they, I think they reported within a you know, few, okay. maybe a month after the visit. So, but this was still accurate stuff at the time I was yeah, giving yeah, sure. it, right? You know, and I, sometimes we are maybe more paying attention to the actual, you know, like yeah. stuff that's coming out. Sure. Maybe well, they mean, weren't getting that from whatever media sources they were, you mm-hmm. know, I mean, that's supposed to be our job, right? Is to stay on top of it and be honest and. Right. But shoot, man. That was just weird. <laughs> well, I mean, I think, I mean, COVID's definitely broken our brains and it's broken. It's, it strains relationships. Yeah. You know, when it comes to vaccination, I mean, you're a pediatrician. That's kind of like half your job is getting kids vaccinated from, from potentially harmful yep. childhood diseases and keep them avoid harm, right? I mean, that's, yeah. that is sort of what the AAP is all about from a patient advocacy point is keeping kids safe. Let's talk about that because, I mean... <laughs> me in trouble i'm not trying to get you in trouble i think <laughs> no i think it's an interesting conversation because we don't oftentimes talk to pediatricians i mean i i'm live with one but when it comes to uh safety culture i mean there have been i've read a number of pieces recently people discussing safetyism or the the um you know the, the move towards removing risk from life and i think one of the questions we got real early on from uh my, our family, we have a, a foster son who is who has a kidney transplant, as you know, and so he's uh, immunosuppressed. He's on immu- I mean, he's on medications to suppress his immune system so that he doesn't reject his kidney. And we got asked very early on by someone, uh, you know, what are you going to do with him? Are you going to leave him at home and stuff? And our answer, I think, when I talked to you about that too, is well, I mean, the reason he got a kidney is because so he can go and live. I mean, right. uh, certainly, you, I mean, he's young, so he's, and he's otherwise healthy. So for all those reasons, you think his chances of a bad outcome are 
lower than someone who's like 65 in a kidney transplant. But still, I mean, you know, where do you, where do you draw the line? And I, th- I feel like people have had a lot, really struggled with trying to figure out safety. And I think in some part, I'm not saying the AAP is responsible for this. They're not the, <laughs> but I think they, that culture of ultra safetyism is pushed within medicine. Um, and, and I think, you know, Petersons are certainly on the front lines of that in some ways because they're, they're getting, because we always want kids to be safe and to grow up healthy and happy. Right. So what are your thoughts on that? And how do you think has COVID changed your, your approach and and view of safety and risk and stuff, or at least how you address with the parents? In general, in pediatricians, we are known as kind of the killjoys when it comes to safety. We don't have, you know, the trampoline. We, you know, don't let our, you know, kids eat hot dogs, you know, all these things, you know, we're just super, because we have like, we were talking earlier, we have a horror story for every normal thing that you wouldn't think twice of. We all have a story we heard of a, or took care of a kid who had a horrible outcome from something really common. So we are on one hand, killjoys. On the other hand, um, we are also the ones when it comes to, um, used to, when it comes to just infectious diseases, we're the ones that are usually calming families down. Right. You know, these are the, it used to be, I mean, when families would call, their whatever their child has a fever of 103, 104 in the middle of the night. Our job is to reassure and kind of calm them down, talk them off the ledge often when it comes to infectious diseases. And this is one where it's kind of that we haven't been able to do that or that's not okay to do in this case. Um, That's been really hard. I mean, I'm used to, you know, being able to have the normal fever talk and have people feel reassured. And sometimes now I'll give that fever talk and I sometimes get the sense that some families just don't don't like to hear that or they don't yeah. you know maybe I, they think i'm being cavalier about or dismissive that. right yeah, like dismissive, of the dismissive and I, concerns yeah and i'm not but i also just i've taken care of kids a long time and covid is you know it's kind of behaving thankfully similar to a lot of the other viruses that we deal with all the time you know so um it's taken us i think a while to realize that i don't know that the aap is kind of doesn't sound like they're coming around in that direction to kind of allow us to go back to the normal advice we would give families. It's yeah, hard. It's really hard. Yeah. I mean, I feel the tide is turning slowly and at some point it'll just be a watershed and everyone's going to kind of sort of say, yep, yeah, it's okay. But I, yeah, I agree that we're not quite there yet. I, I, I think with the, um, uh, with, when it comes to fevers and reassuring people and that, Normal infectious disease, I th- well, I think COVID is certainly looking more and more like a cold, especially for kids. It's almost always been, I, I think overall, I think you can safely say it's it's worse than a regular cold, whatever a regular cold is, but you know, like the typical sort of runny nose sort of thing. It's worse than that, but it's not like orders of magnitude worse than like the flu or something like that, which right. is the flu can be pretty bad too, but. Yeah. Um, you know, in, in, at least in my experience, when I had a kid come in looking really sick in the office, like I'm pretty sure it's not COVID. <laughs> you know, I'm pretty <laughs> sure when they come in looking real sick, it's going to be RSV or it's going to be flu, you know, because they tend to look really terrible. And the kids that come in with COVID, thankfully, they're not, you know, sick in the office. Yeah, right. I mean, and I think it's, everyone has a hospital where they have a few kids who are really sick for whatever mm-hmm. reason, either genetically unlucky, mm-hmm. they have other pre existing conditions, whatever. I mean, there's, that's the one thing in medicine you will find. Uh, whatever you do. I mean, I, I was just talking with my partner today that about every week I add something to my list of things I don't ever want to contract or have, right? <laughs> like there's, someone has something happen to them and you're like, how could this happen? I took care of someone uh, who had a piece of countertop fall and, you know, mess up his knee. And I'm, you know, you've had people who 
have horrible traumatic injuries at factories and well, just like you, if the kid has Lego that, you know, chokes in a Lego, Lego yeah. or something, right? Yeah. I mean, or get drowns in a washing machine. I mean, yeah. horrible things like you don't want to think yeah. about, but those sort of things happen. But I guess you, again, you have to sort of keep risks in mind. So you, we mentioned the AP and uh, yeah, I'm going to try and get you in trouble with every organization right now, but <laughs> I, I mentioned AP, AP because it's not really any different than any other specialty societies in the sense that there seems to be a, um, a certain, maybe not coordination, but certain acceptance of, of certain levels of authority more than others within or professional organizations. I think, you know, CAP defers a lot to the CDC, the FDA, even though, uh, prior teaching or general, um, knowledge or assumptions about sort of childhood development and things like that were different from the AAP. We see this in, I mean, all the societies. So I don't want to pick on the AAP specifically, except that, you know, the kids thing is like a really big issue right now as we speak with schools and masking and, you know, virtual learning and all that kind of stuff. And the AAP has led, um, provided scientific or at least professional credence to a lot of these proposals from the federal government. Do you see the AAP as, um, one that it can be reformed or at least how did how, I guess to, to be fa- to be fair, maybe a better a better way of putting it is like if you're a member of the AP and you think, mm, you know, this I think this is misguided or I think this is they're they're worried about something that I'm not as worried about. How what kind of feedback loop and mechanism is there? Because I would say for the American Society of Anesthesiologists, I don't think there's really any way we have some reps and things like that, but it's really hard to get a message saying, you know, I think your stance on the X, Y or Z is is probably not helpful or maybe not everyone agrees to this or it's not, it's not a consensus, right? Like you would hope that any organization is going to have, if they're going to put forth any statement that there's going to be a consensus that is, uh, that is, is very broad and that it's very heavily supported by its members, like, you know, 80% or something like that. Not something that's 55, 45, right? Yeah. Like the A, AAP, I, I'm a little, I guess, disappointed that <clears throat> your observation is totally correct. It, it did not seem like they were making their own independent assessment of what children need. It just seemed to be repeating kind of some party line, which I was kind of disappointed with because I would, I had hoped that the organization would come out specifically um, focused on kids, you know, and kids' needs. And so that doesn't seem to be the case. And I don't know... I don't know that they're, I mean, hopefully they'll backpedal a little bit, um, but I don't feel like many pediatricians can really say a whole lot. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it's, you don't want to get a, a mob after you or someone accusing you of not taking the disease serious, you know? Right. I mean, I was, last year we were with, um, we would do these roundtables with the medical society with legislators. And, you know, you're, you're on this call with ER doctors and, and, and internists and ICU docs. And then I, I'm a pediatrician, right? You know, so I, yeah. I'm not really seeing what they're seeing, but they're not seeing what I'm seeing, you know. And so and I think there's also a general, a lot of fear among healthcare workers of actually getting COVID as well that kind of maybe, you know, their judgments were a little bit different on what they thought as well. But it was hard I, I just never said anything the entire time. This is when we were totally locked down. You know, the kids weren't in school. You know, they, you couldn't get your hair cut, all, all this stuff. And you felt like you, you couldn't say anything because I was a, I'm a pediatrician, right? right? I'm not seeing what they're seeing, you know? And so that was, it was a little, it still is that way too. I mean, you'll, if a few people will maybe voice some concerns about the kids and then you'll have another voice coming from inside the hospital. Right. You just feel like you 
you just got to shut up. Yeah. Well, it's tough when someone comes to the story, they're saying they're seeing death and disease. I mean, and unquestionably they were, right? You're seeing the hospitals fill up. Yeah. They're just not filling up with kids. And so, uh, yeah, I felt like it, the AP took a lot of stance. And actually, even they say in their statements that they were sort of saying it for teachers, which, you know, is admirable that you want to care for everyone who's caring for your kids. But you have to recognize that you have to take, do what's best for the kids, too, sometimes. And it, and I think it was pretty clear early on that the kids were not a big vector of disease, unlike in most instances, in which they are, like with flu and things like that, right? Yeah. Uh, w- when it comes to organized medicine, like the uh, state medical societies, it's or the American Medical Association, it's easy to kind of become discouraged. And just like I said, you know, AP, you can't really affect things within your special society very easily as far as getting input. But um, what's the utility for physicians to get involved? I mean, because I think it's easy to say, ah, these guys are all, you know, the AMA, they're just in bed with the government or they just want to do whatever, you know, they're all for universal health care, whatever it might be that you don't support. What's, what would you argue for someone who doesn't agree with a lot of those things that maybe the, the sort of the, the popular sort of opinions within these organizations, what, what's arguments you make for being involved in this sort of thing? Because I know you've been involved in Michigan State Medical Society for quite some time. I think, I think it's worth getting involved. I think you have to figure out where the more, where you can have the most impact, right? Mm-hmm. So for me to get involved in the AAP, I, it seems kind of pointless, right? Yeah. You know, there's, I'm not gonna be able to change that, you know? So for me, getting involved locally with the medical society here in Michigan, that's, you know, you can have your impact there. So, but some people may, you know, maybe they've been doing a lot of stuff with the AAP and they can, you know, make a difference in that arena. Great. But yeah, I I think it's, I think it is worth it because there's, that's how change happens. I mean, that's how... Well, right, the AP is <laughs> issuing statements that people are taking, right? Yeah. Or, or the MS, the Michigan State Medical Society is issuing a statement, right? Yeah. yeah. So if you're not there, you can't have any impact on that, right? Right. right. Uh, and I would I would say a different thing about from the AP, uh, from the specialty societies, let's just stop picking the AP because that's not fair. It's, <laughs> I mean, it's nothing special about the AP. It's a, a specialty society. But when you look at medical societies, but it, the broader medical societies where you, where you basically you represent represent doctors. American Medical Association should be obviously be the natural uh, um, national sort of society for this. There are other ones, the APS, that are much, much smaller. Um, There's another one, too, I can't think of right now. There are other groups that represent doctors in various facets. But when you think of, like, who represents doctors, usually it's the state medical societies that are the ones who are seen as the ones representing doctors, right? And so when there's a legislation or regulations that come uh, come along, they don't ask for input. I mean, they ask for input from the hospitals. <laughs> Insurance mm-hmm. companies probably more than physicians, but when they look for the physician's input, that's where they go, right? So that'd be another argument, I suppose, to be involved in in organized medicine, so you can be in there because a lot of things happen that aren't even legislative. Yeah, I just said. I mean, even this was just we you've talked about MOC a whole lot, um, but it's kind of been heating up in Michigan again too. I was. Um, contacted by a few doctors in Michigan where Blue Cross Blue Shield is behaving poorly again, yeah. which is hilarious because they've been behaving for two years now and suddenly they're not behaving again, which tells me that the pandemic has got to be winding down if they're starting to harass doctors again, right? And so to be clear, I guess to get background, so when you say MOC, you're referring to maintenance, maintenance certification, certification, which yeah, is when yeah. you get certified and board certified, then you have to maintain it by doing certain things yes. like and we in, in Michigan, there was legislation passed that prevented the insurance companies from discriminating against doctors for not purchasing um, this you know, MOC product. So um, they were supposed to stop harassing doctors. And so they did for a while, but now they're back to harassing doctors. And the only place that you're going to be able to get that help to kind of get them to back down is from your medical society, 
Right. We're the only ones. You, you alone can't go and talk to Blue Cross Blue Shield. They're not going to listen to you. You know, so having them there and that's a you can call them up and they can give you the advice and they meet you know regularly with them with these insurers and they can help you out. So there's, I mean. Yeah, huge benefit, and and they certainly have access to to legislators too, right? Like they yeah. have relationships they've with minority majority leaders in the House and the Senate and the governor's office usually, and yep. and I don't say bureaucrats generally, but just people within the health human services uh, department. So, yeah, so it it is um, like most things that you have to find your place in whatever the organization is and where you like you said where you can make the most impact, where you have the most talent. I mean, some people are better at coming up with legislation, working with legislators. Some people are better keyboard warriors and organizing people. Other people are just idea people, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, so there's different roles that you can have with that. But I, I was very skeptical because of getting involved in organized medicine, and I was convinced by one of my older partners to get involved. And it's been, I think, helpful. I mean, I think I, I've met lots of great people, and and you can affect legislation and things like that. So I now, of course, you have to think, make sure. Wasn't I convinced by one of your older partners too? I I am I. <laughs> tend to think I might have been the one responsible for you. It was like, yeah, I think it was like this trickle down, right? Yeah. I, I think like, he was, Whoa. yeah, I think he was, I think Here he was, are. got us involved, but, <laughs> um, so when it comes to, and to getting involved at local, I mean, you obviously been involved at MOC. We've, we go to our medical society and we work on resolutions, you know, I don't want to say fighting, but certainly, um, providing different viewpoints from other physicians in the state. Cause everyone's got a different idea of how things should run, uh, you know, not only just because from political reasons, but also from specialty reasons, right? Like dermatologists or like orthopedic surgeons and neurosurgeons, they may cross paths as far as, you know, with the privileges in the hospital, like they both yeah. work on backs or whatever. So um, what do you think, what do you think the chances are of MOC moving further, do you, of getting it enforced? Like, you know, you say they're violating the law. Well, I mean, you can break all the laws you want. If no one's actually enforcing it, you can do what you do what you want. So do you think it require, what do you think is the, the next step. Well, what's the what's the problem? Is it is it a is it a executive branch mm-hmm. thing? Is this like the wrong person's there, or they just don't see it as a problem? Um, in the for the insurers, you mean? I, well, I mean, I think for to give a little better background too. Essentially, if you remove board, if you remove the certification from the insurance company, they can say we're not going to pay for this person because we only pay for people who are certified. And so, if you're not maintaining your certification, so it's discriminating against physicians who are not maintaining the certification, even though they were you know originally. They got their board certification in pediatrics or anesthesia, but they don't continue. They will call it busy work of continuing yeah. and paying the money to for these products. Then they risk losing, basically losing your job. Essentially, I mean, you can't bill for anything. You can't get any money unless people pay you cash, which not much of medicine works that way. So now that we are, I think we're three years out, four years out from the legislation. I guess I my view is probably changing a little bit on how you kind of manage this beast because our. Our legislation only covers pediatricians, internists, and family doctors. <clears throat> and now, I think probably the way you manage this is by um, having more choice, actually. Probably not just getting rid of MOC, but having choice in how you maintain that certification. So I think um, particularly the National Board of Physicians and Surgeons is probably um, having that as an alternative for the insurers to allow in their credentialing is probably the way to go, is my guess at this point. Um, they just got um, approved by NCQA, which mm-hmm. is the kind of overarching board that tells the insurers what's kind of you know high quality. And so for a while, they only specified ABMS boards, but now they've allowed this National Board of Physicians and Surgeons. And so now the insurance companies should be open to allowing that for um, 
kind of credentialing with them. So that's that's kind of where I see it going at this point. Well, that's um, kind of remarkable that they got that. Oh yeah, that's how do they do that? Because I mean, that's <laughs> it's magic. Yeah, I don't know. It's it's impressive. Yeah, yeah I mean, it's, it's it's so this is very complicated. This is very much in the weeds, but it affects you if you're a patient. You know, yeah. having these physicians suddenly yeah. disappear. Right, you have. The ABMS, which I've described before, is American Board of Medical Societies. That's all those ones we're talking about. The uh, American Board of Pediatrics, American Board of Anesthesia, American Board of Dermatology, right? All these these all specialty these boards. boards yeah. They have various criteria. They give you that you get board certified after your residency or, and fellowship, and then you have to maintain it. And usually, yeah. it used to be just for life. Now it's you pay money and you have to do it, re, do stuff to get and basically spend a lot of money and time to maintain your certification. Yeah, and that is all through the, those boards and. And it was basically just the ABMS that was the one that they was... They were the only ones that were kind of considered a quality measure for the insurers. And so the insurers um, often, they were kept on saying the reason why we're doing this is because ABMS is the only one that is listed as the quality, a quality measure. And now there are, you know, the National Board of Physicians and Surgeons has also been listed as a potential quality measure. So, and, and if you're if you're a doc, you can go to nbpas.org. I yeah. think it's the that's their website where basically what it is is you have to have a active medical license. You have to have finished a residency. You have to have been board certified. You can't just say, uh, now that I'm not, I don't want yeah, do to do the- Yeah, you have initial certification. You actually have to finish a yeah. residency and actually be a specialist in something. And yeah. then, and then uh, you pay some money so they can maintain a registry. I, I, and then a lot of these organizations are so they're all private, right? They're all they're not public, uh, in the sense that they're not government run, but they have clearly a relationship. And the government uses them as proxies for quality, like you mentioned, mm-hmm. with this because this NCQA or whatever is still uh, it's private, right? It is private. And it's like some foundation or something. I'm sure it's a five one c three from the board of NCQA and the board of the American Board of Medical Specialties. So right. there's definitely overlap. That's why it's quite miraculous that they allowed another board to be certified. So. Yeah, it, <laughs> it makes it really, it makes it challenging. And to get back to the licensing part, uh, with it comes to the state, the, every state has different licensing requirements. And and so, um, you know, there, there have been calls for licensing to just be national, right? Why don't... Aren't because one medical license for right, and I mean, I can I can understand the the argument for that because I wouldn't think that if you've gone to barber school, let's say if you feel like you had a licensing for barbers, that there'd be any reason that they couldn't go into Indiana and you know cut hair or, um, well, heck, I mean, most professions, right? I mean, there's no reason you couldn't go and do. I mean, it's not like medicine is significantly different in Michigan versus you know Tennessee. I, we use the same medications. I mean, there's really not much difference in in the law. So what would your argument be against against that? I mean, because you could see arguments that it favored because now I have to get, if I want to have a telehealth program, yeah. I've got to get licensed in 50 states. Well, that's all. I mean, talk, about, a, talk about regulatory pain, nightmare, right? right? Um, I Well, largely, I think, because you're, um, the discipline of physicians is at the state level, right? Mm-hmm. So it still is, you know, the, if you something bad happens, you're going to be disciplined by your state board of medicine. You know, what's your alternative? Are you going to have a national board of medicine that's going to discipline yeah, you? Right. You know, I, that, that could get messy as well, too. Yeah. So. Well, I mean, you move it further from the, the people, so to speak, right? Like you always worry about. And of course, when you look at the licensing requirements in the states, they are, they vary. I mean, the amount of uh, CME or mm-hmm. the types of CMEs mm-hmm. you need. Some state thinks you need to know about X, Y, or Z. Another state thinks, you know, I'm sure there's there wouldn't be a requirement in Kansas to know about like shark safety, but maybe it'd be useful to, to have physicians be familiar with that in Florida or like rattlesnakes, right? You don't need to worry about in Maine, but you probably do in 
New Mexico. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, they're, obviously telemedicine has opened this up, so many people want to have a license in multiple states. So, um, I mean, we do have the interstate licensure compact, <laughs> which <laughs> Michigan is part of now, you know, where you can go in and you can get a bunch of licenses at once. Um, I, there are private companies that will do this for you, too. You know, obviously, if, with all the telehealth companies that you knew that would pop up as well, people that are going to help you figure out how to get all of your licensure that you need and make sure you're doing all of the educational requirements and everything. So that's probably an easy way to work around than having a national license, don't you think? <laughs> well, probably, yeah. Well, I think so. And 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 one that's more responsive. I think you would you want a you'd want a board that's more responsive. Can you imagine if you're running a national board and you'd have millions of you'd have millions of complaints all the time? I can't even imagine. I there are there are probably so many complaints they deal with already and then there's also times where they fail and don't go after doctors like they should you know yeah, like, right. that would be way worse if it were now yeah we've, we definitely know instances <laughs> when we're like i can't believe this person still has a license right because they've you hear some story like how did this person were they practicing yeah. like doing surgery out of a pole barn for like four or five years you're like it's crazy that yeah. this sort of thing can occur yet yeah. it does and then and then you get cited for saying you know cloth masks <laughs> oh, might not be that no, helpful it was, so right sad. <laughs> do you worry about do you <laughs> It kind of goes along to brings me back a little bit to the thought of with physicians in their uh, their online presence because now you know with you have a much bigger platform than you used to have twenty years ago. I mean, twenty years ago you could say whatever you wanted for the most part, unless you're in the room with someone, they're not going to know, right? But now you can tweet about something or put a Facebook post and or you know, write a med page today or whatever. I mean, there's all kinds of avenues for getting your voice out, which is I think a good thing for physicians, but I think it also poses some risk. Do you, do you think that the environment is changing such that you you worry more about that, or do you think oh, this is just a yes? <laughs> or do you think, or do you think it's just like a temporary blip that two years from now we're gonna be like, ah, eh, that was just we just lost our minds and now we're okay? I I don't know. I mean, on one hand, I feel like the the kind of social media mob has a very short attention span, you know, so they just kind of go after one person and then they just after forty eight hours they've moved on to the next, you know, so. <laughs> And one, if you just kind of ignore something, it probably will, they'll move on to someone else. So, um, but I, yeah, you, you have to be super careful about what you say. Like, <laughs> you know, I, I just don't even really post a whole lot of anything. No one knows what I think. <laughs> I guess. Until now. <laughs> Until now. <laughs> now you're screwed. <laughs> I know. I'm in Yeah. You're like, I want to talk about, you I'm know. just slowly <laughs> ambushing one doctor every week in my show. That's my, that's my goal. Yeah. See how many people I get their licenses revoked. (laughs) Let's talk about this controversial topic where doctors are getting their licenses revoked. We're saying (laughs) controversial things. Great. Do you think, would you recommend for new physicians to maintain a social media presence? There's no way. So if someone comes into your practice, you say, you know what, I just don't think it's worth having. Because there's there's an argument to be made that it's useful having a brand, right? And that if, maybe it depends what kind of physician you are, right? Like your plastic surgeon, you probably, your brand is much more important than someone who's a radiologist, right? Who's just going to be sitting in the dark. No apologies to the radiologist friends out there. Yeah. Um, I think it's hard because you don't know what's, sometimes you can't predict what's going to be offensive. <laughs> right. You know? And so things that you probably wouldn't have thought anything of suddenly could be, you know, I, it's, it's a tricky, tricky time right now. I don't know that you would get enough benefit out of it to be worth the risk if you're a young person or young I, have, there, I mean, I watch on Twitter some of these med students saying things, and I'm like, oh, my goodness, you, I really hope you're pretty anonymous because you don't want 
who's going to want to have you in their residency program? Some of the stuff you're saying. Yeah. Well, and, and I think, um, that's definitely one of the searches right now, right? When you hire someone, you're looking at their social media presence. And I think maybe even by, if some of you're in training, I think you're, there's definitely some concern when you're res- when you're residency or medical certain medical school getting into residency, but probably even more so is getting a, landing a job afterwards, right? Like if you are somewhat controversial, you may have a group that just doesn't like that sort of viewpoint for whatever whatever it might be, and they're not going to really evaluate you on who you are. They're going to value like what you've been saying, like instead of like oh this is a competent person, they seem very personable. They could fit in. They seem to fit in with our culture. They look at you and say, "Wow, this guy's kind of a lunatic that they're yeah. talking about this stuff." Yeah, and I think the the area of misinformation is so nebulous that (laughs) it's changing by the week, you know, what's considered misinformation, you know? So I, you know, if they put out that they're going to go after doctors for saying things that might be misinformation, I probably just not say anything. I don't know. (laughs) Yes. And 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 it's terrible because the debate is what is so important, right? You know, so, you know, when you and I, when we go to these medical society meetings and there are, there's debate, that is, I learn so much from that. You know, I go in and I think I, I, think I know a, how I believe or what I think about some topic. And then I hear people from different parts of Michigan, different types of practice, and I totally change my mind. Oh, yeah, you know, all the time. That, <laughs> I mean, and that I think is really, really part of what we should be able to do. Um, and maybe that's something that just has to take place behind closed doors and should not take place on, in public. I don't know, for a while. Yeah, I think I think the big problem right now when it comes to that is the fact that we're not having these debates in um, we're not having where they should be happening. Meaning we're we're discussing things like, well, let's just look at. I mean, COVID's obvious example because it's broken everyone's brains, right? We're not able to discuss this openly. People can't disagree. But where these discussions should be happening, what we should do, have a mask policy, let's say, for children in schools. We shouldn't be having some edict come down and then a bunch of people just yelling at each other online. We should have a discussion at some place of higher learning. I mean, that's the whole point of a university and an academic center or medical schools, right? That you have discussions, you bring in people with opposing views. And if they're charlatans, you expose them for who they are, right? If you don't, um, you don't just say, well, you can't talk to this person because they're so crazy that they're if their views even get out there they're going to pollute minds and what happens is just so in retrospect if we had done that like actually like had doctors well i mean and, and not necessarily i just yeah not necessarily doctors right like i mean if you have a thing in school right if you but if you have the, the school mask man can, you, you have people come in epidemiologists and say what's the evidence for this and people can argue one way or the other if there's good evidence or not you have people come in who are child development specialists they're not necessarily physicians but they can tell you how important it is to see faces or how not important it is to see faces. And you can have people who come, you know, psychologists. I mean, psychologists talking about the importance of this and teachers, their concerns about being infected. I mean, you'd have more stakeholders involved in this sort of thing. But you have to have it in a in a in in some format where you can actually have honest discussion. I, do, I feel like we don't have any of those, those – the places where those should be happening is universities, I think. I mean, I think that's naturally you'd have it. You're not going to have it on TV. You're not going to have, like, Crossfire where you have – 30, you know, you have right. each have 30 seconds to have these. You got to have a long, I mean, I hate to, Joe Rogan's in the news right now, but the reason is he has a long format where you can actually talk to people and get into, you need to have that sort of long You're not discussion. you do a long format here. Are no, you? I don't know. No, okay. we're, we're almost wrapped up. <laughs> okay. But I think, you know, you have to have a, you have to have a, a, a forum where you have maybe two hours. You have a bunch of people just talking about stuff. I think, I think unless you have, until you have that, you're not going to have, you're not going to get much cohesive agreement on what's going on and and you can't be covered in a tweet it can't it can't be covered covered 140 characters uh i think you know 
I think there's definitely a, a point an importance that I think it's absolutely important that physicians are out there in the socialist media sphere, but it is dangerous. It is a minefield. I know. And I think you well, have to be I, careful with and that. And I'm thankful for them because there are definitely yeah. things that I have learned medically on Twitter, which is really bizarre. <laughs> but, yeah. you know, I, that's where I'm getting. I'll, there'll be reports that I'll be able to read. I, I don't really know where else I would have access to these things yeah, right, right now. And so that's I'm very thankful that there are people out there that are putting that out there and you can read it because I wouldn't have known or had access otherwise. Yeah. But I wouldn't want to be that person. That's the, what's terrible, you know. So I don't know. It's tough. I know my, my wife's always like, are you getting in trouble doing this? And I, I haven't. I mean, I don't know. I, I think I try and be pretty nuanced. I try and be honest. I don't know if that's helpful or not. Um, maybe I'm not big enough of a show to, to, get, to get enough ire. Um, I know I've gotten a few nasty letters, but a lot of supportive. So I don't know. I mean, just trying to have honest conversations. and But it is fraught with risk i suppose mm-hmm. just like you know if you come up across a deer that deer might have covid it, it might, might give you covid 70 i mean it's yeah higher it's now, like 80 percent right? now yeah that's crazy i still have not figured out how that's possible i don't even i don't want to know i mean i don't know um are people making out deer i don't know because you can't get near you can't get close. i don't know if, if there are people in this country listening who are not familiar with deer but they're not exactly but social this- animals like getting next to people so i don't know how you get close enough because this was they're not we indoors were, we were not in hunting season Right. Well, even your hunting season, how are you going to get close to your deer? It's not like you're, not like you're like wrestling deer. I mean, you're out there, though. I mean, you're, you talk to the hunters, if they're like 100 yards, they think they're close to a deer. I mean, I think the, just, <laughs> the amount of viral load you've got breathing on a deer at 100 yards is like almost zero. There must be some intermediary, like a mouse or something, and then they get by the deer, right? There's got to be something else. <laughs> I don't know. Or we just don't understand COVID as much, I we think, think, which is entirely possible. It, that is crazy. There could be like clouds of COVID moving around that... I've heard people suggest that that's the case, but it doesn't really matter, I guess. The fact is that it's pretty much, I think, burning its course here and burning out. Mm. Um, so I don't want to get you any more trouble. So uh, I would direct people, if they want to find out more about you, to go to Speedbump Kitchen. Yes, that's, that's right? my cooking site. It's it totally is, not political. It is fantastic. And it, it's great if you've got a kid with food allergies, especially. You have all kinds of... Well, yeah, I know, not gluten free, but dairy free. Dairy, egg, and nuts yeah. are the big ones. So yeah, so and everything there looks like a delicious. I mean, I've had a few things. You're a fantastic cook, so I would highly recommend anyone. Well, it's true. Highly recommend anyone check that out for recipes. That's uh, you not know, controversial. And I, I mean, yeah, you don't really tweet and stuff much, except when you had the issue with the licensure, which is like I, I gotta have you on about st- that. I kind of stick towards like I don't know. Yeah. Well, I mean, I guess Punching you know. In the end, it up, all I guess. it all worked. It all worked out right. It worked the way it's supposed to. People filed a complaint. It was found to be. I, it was, you know, you know, it was an interesting process. I'm, you know, I, I don't know. I, I can see how it could be really stressful because I experienced that. Um, but it was, it was fine. I'm glad the process exists. But it, you, you really can get kind of reported for anything. Crazy so, stuff. I guess. Yeah. I'll feel for people, you know, a little bit more now if it ever happens to them. Well, Dr. Meg Edison from Grand Rapids, Michigan, thank you so much for being on The Paradox. And we'll hopefully have to talk again in the future. Thanks. Thanks for listening to The Paradox. If you like what The Doc is doing, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or Stitcher. And share the show with your friends. Become a supporting listener to get access to special bonuses at patreon.com forward slash the paradox. Show notes can be found at theparadox.com.
So you had asked me if I wanted to just do this over Zoom and not like be in person. I was like, no, we have to do in person because it's pretty much my only flex is that like I know you and I can come over yeah, and right. like do this. Otherwise, I mean, you have all these famous people on here and you know, I'm one of the few. Who yeah, I have person, so many famous so. people. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so. it's outside of me. Yeah, go ahead. 